Predestination. It's perhaps one of the most controversial and misunderstood doctrines of the Christian faith, leading many believers to avoid it altogether. What does the Bible really say about predestination? What impact does this teaching have on the idea of free will? And what does this doctrine mean for our understanding of those who don't ultimately believe in Jesus? My guest today is Andy Nacelli, and in our conversation, he answers a few of the most common questions that we often have about this difficult doctrine. Andy is a professor of systematic theology and New Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and one of the pastors of the North Church in Moundsview. His new book is called Predestination and Introduction, which is part of Crossway's Short Studies in Systematic Theology series. Let's get started. Well, Andy, thank you so much for joining me again on the Crossway Podcast. My pleasure, Matt. All right, let's start very briefly here. How, how would you explain the doctrine of predestination to a fifth grader? Well, election just means that you choose. So I might, depending where I'm at, let's say we're in a room with some objects, like we're in a kitchen and there's a bowl full of apples. Maybe there are seven apples in the bowl. And I'd say, if I want an apple and I choose an apple, then that means I'm electing that apple. I Why are you using the word electing now? Because... Because uh, we said predestination, but you're you're bringing in this other other word. So, so predestination is the is the big umbrella term that includes theologically when God actively chooses and when He passes over. So I chose the word elect to illustrate the positive aspect of He's choosing some. So I would I'd say I chose that apple and I passed over the rest, and that whole transaction of me choosing some and not the others illustrates the big picture of predestination. So predestination is the overarching concept. And then within that we have election. And then what's the term for passing over? Well, there's not a clear Bible word for this. There are different phrases the Bible uses, not just one. So the word that theologians use is reprobation. And that sounds scary. That's a, that's a big scary word yeah. that some people listening are already like, Ooh, I don't, yeah. I don't like this. It's just a way of trying to summarize concisely the concept that I believe is is in the Bible that God sovereignly and justly chose to pass over non-elect sinners and punish them. So whatever that is, you can call it something else, but that concept is what I want to say the Bible teaches. Okay, so you, you said that a couple times. This is from the Bible. What's the, maybe the one or two key passages that you would point to to defend this idea of predestination? The main passage is Romans 9. Uh, so Romans 9 is probably the main passage for election and reprobation. But if I was going to make a case for God ultimately causing reprobation, I'd go to Romans 9 and show that God, the potter, prepared vessels of wrath for destruction. That's Romans 9, 20 to 23. So that's the analogy of a potter and pottery, potter and clay. Um, and that, that's a more, that, that passage strikes me as a more proactive a statement of what's happening in reprobation than even the, the example you gave before of passing over. There's a certain kind of a lack of activity that's implied there, whereas the idea of preparing vessels for destruction feels a little bit more proactive, which, again, is, is sort of an uncomfortable way to talk about it. Yeah, and it's not just there. In Jude, it says that these certain people were long ago designated for this condemnation. So God designated certain people long ago for condemnation. It says in the Bible, there, there are passages in Revelation in chapters 13 and 17 that say that God intentionally did not write the names of certain individuals in the book of life 
before he created the world. He could have included their names, but he didn't. Mm. Um, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. So God hid Jesus' message from the wise and understanding, and Jesus is praising God for that, praising the Father for that. So there are other texts, but those are some key ones that show that there's something here that God ultimately causes Mm -hmm. this. So I wonder if you could uh, take a moment and kind of speak pastorally here. Do you understand and can you even resonate personally with the discomfort that we often feel when we hear these kinds of things explained, this understanding of what Scripture's teaching, which obviously is somewhat controversial at times. Others oh, yeah. have different approaches to these passages. But do you, can you resonate with the, the discomfort that we often feel? Absolutely. And my wife actually was a little bit unnerved that I was writing this book. Mm. When I told her I was going to write a book on predestination, she was fearful. And she rejoices in the doctrine of predestination and God's sovereignty. So she believes it all, but it was frightening to her because we have four daughters. Right now they're 14, 11, 10, and 5. Mm. And it's a debilitating thought to imagine that one of your own children rejects Jesus. Mm. And when you talk about this, it feels like it's out of your hands. Like, well, if God chose, then what can we do about it? Yeah. I think having, I think you're right. Having kids in particular kind of, makes this doctrine feel all the more weighty and serious. It was a theoretical to some extent, but children sort of drive it home in a way that feels, at least for me, kind of unparalleled in in thinking about it. Yeah, I have a note here she wrote me. uh, She said that as she read my book, that rather than predestination frightening her, she said it helped change her heart and cause her to worship and love our good God even more. And that was surprising to her. Hmm. So I think when you just study everything, you correlate, what does the Bible say about God's predestining work? The result should be that you come away encouraged and praising God and just you're humbled. And often when people talk about it, it's the exact opposite, isn't mm-hmm. it? It's they're sinfully proud or they may be anxious or they're, they're not encouraged. So, Yeah. Well, and, uh, we've, we've spent a lot of our time already just talking about reprobation, the negative side of right. predestination. But maybe just to briefly hit on election again, that, that actually, you know, when you think about it on its own terms, it, it is an incredibly encouraging, uplifting idea that God chose us. Un- unpack that a little bit. Yeah. So uh, if I had to define it in one concise sentence, election is that God sovereignly and graciously chose to save individual sinners. So if you compare their passages that say vessels of mercy, which God prepared beforehand for glory, versus vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that's comparing election and reprobation. Or in Romans eleven seven, it's the elect and the rest. In John 10, you have Jesus' sheep and those who are not Jesus' sheep. So election is this positive predestination for eternal life, and it's in accord with God's love and mercy and grace. And it has all these distinct goals that are so encouraging. Mm. So then the natural next question that someone might ask about all of this is, okay, I accept this is what the Bible's teaching. How is this fair, though? And maybe to put it even more bluntly, how is this just? How can this be what God is actually doing? So the way I would approach that, uh, I'd take two steps. My first step would be to turn to Romans 9 and read verses 14 to 18. So in that passage, Paul addresses that very question, basically, is there any injustice with God over his choosing to save some and not others? So he literally asked, like, does this make God unjust? (laughs) (laughs) So it's this very question. And I'd answer, this passage teaches that God is fair when he sovereignly has mercy on whomever he wants. 
that's what that passage teaches. Mm. So that'd be my first first step is just to work through Romans 9. And then I'd illustrate it, secondly, with a parable that Jesus told in Matthew 20. Do you remember the story about the landowner and he hires workers? So he hires them at like 6 a.m. Yeah, different times of the day. 9 a.m., 12, And then pays three, them all five. the same. Yeah, so... So those are the different times, 6 a.m., 9 a.m., noon, 3, 5. At 6 p.m., he then pays them in reverse order a denarius, a day, day's wage. And as he's paying them a denarius for the guy who worked for an hour and the guy who worked for less, et cetera, the ones who started at the beginning of the day, they think, oh, we're going to get some more. We yeah. agreed for a denarius, but, man, he, if he's paying them a denarius, what's he going to pay us? And you get to the end, and the master says to the foreman to pay the, the guys who worked all day the same. And they're grumbling. They're mm. grumbling. And the master says to one of the grumblers, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denaria? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose, I elect, to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So that, I know this passage isn't about the doctrine of election per se. It's indirectly illustrating a principle the principle is that God is not unfair when he's undeservedly kind to some and not others. Because mm. I think I would read that that parable and kind of apply it to salvation in in that, like, everyone is being saved. Some people are saved early at life. They live a godly life. Others are saved on their deathbed. And they all we all receive the same ultimate reward in a sense. That That's how that would address the criticism of unfairness. But you know, what about when those who don't get paid anything, right? That, that might be like the... Well, the, the principle here is, does God give everyone what they deserve? Mm. And for some people, in God's graciousness, Jesus absorbs his wrath and takes what we deserve. Yeah. So that, that, is, that the sin is paid for and we get mercy and grace. Uh, so if we are all going to insist on, hey, we want fairness, we want justice, we all go to hell. Yeah. Yeah, then that that gets that then the core idea here undergirding this doctrine is that is the conviction that we all deserve death, that That's we right. all deserve punishment. None of us we're not starting from this right. neutral we're a spot. bunch of rebels and God in his kindness decided to save some. Yeah. And we don't know all the reasons he chose some and not others. He mm-hmm. just it's like with Israel, I loved you because I loved you. Not because you were lovely. It's not like God chooses the strongest and the prettiest and the bravest. He, it's, that's not why. Yeah. So next next obvious question, how does predestination fit with free will? The idea that we can <laughs> make choices that matter. I'm laughing because so I, I wrote the, in this book I wrote there it's divided into a bunch of chapters and the chapter on on on, uh, on free will. I think I spent more time on that chapter than the rest of the book combined. Mm. And I didn't plan on it that way. I just it's such a landmine philosophically, exegetically just putting it all together. So how long, how long do we have here? <laughs> yeah, 30 seconds. <laughs> um, man, so... Just briefly, how would you, you know, again, address that with a Christian coming to you as, a, as their pastor, perhaps, sitting yeah. down across the coffee and kind of saying, like, I just don't understand how this can fit with any concept of free will that, that has any meaning to it. Yeah, so here's how I... Initially, I go to Romans 9 again. So earlier I said I go to Romans 9. That was 14 to 18. This time it'd be verses 19 to 23, I think. And I'd show two responses Paul has... When someone objects, it's not fair for God to blame people for doing what he ordained they would do. So it's exactly your question. Mm. So response one in Romans 9 is surprising. Who are you to say that it's unfair for God to blame people? Mm. So the first question is like, it's not even a philosophical answer. It's just putting you in your place. Yeah, like You don't have standing to even ask the question. <laughs> yeah, it's if you don't get this, don't accuse God of wrong. Put your hand over your mouth before you do that. So that's mm. just the first thing. So 
uh, I think we should be careful that we don't sinfully accuse God of wrong. Hmm. So that's first. And second, I'd say the potter, that's God, is free to mold the clay, that's us, however he wants. So that's what the text says. And then people will say, well, then in what sense do we have free will? Because when I do things, my everything in me, in my sense experience, says I chose to do it. Like I'm sitting here in a chair. I chose to sit in this chair. That was my decision. You didn't make me. Mm. I did it. So fair enough. We, we, we make genuine choices. Our choices are genuine choices. But the problem is that many of us presuppose that because our choices are genuine choices, that therefore God couldn't have ordained those free choices. Yeah, they feel like they're mutually exclusive. Right. And that's, that's where we have to press in. So some would, would wrongly conclude that God would be guilty of forcing us to sin. He would be unjust for condemning certain individuals for doing what he ordained they would do. So they say, you know, what God wants is not mechanical, pre-programmed, robotic outcomes. And that's what the Calvinist view of election is, basically, they'd say. Because why isn't it that if I took my kids, took my son, and I grabbed his arm, and I took his arm, and I made him hit his sister, and then I turned around and punished my son for doing that, I think everyone would acknowledge he wasn't, he, it wasn't his fault. He's yeah. not morally culpable Correct. for that exactly. act. That's, that is bad. So how is that not what is going on when okay. it comes to God? So several steps to take here. Step one would be this is the foundational truth that God and not God are two distinct categories. God... The creator is distinct from his creation. So that in your analogy, what we have is a person, everyone in your story, they're all creatures. Mm. So when one creature insists on getting his way, he's a bully. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have the right to do that. For one to get his will, the other one doesn't get his will. Well, that, that whole framework doesn't work. A better analogy would be to say a novelist and the characters in the story. So you pick a story like C.S. Lewis, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Edmund betrays some people. I won't give it away in case you haven't read the book. <laughs> Spoilers. Uh, and if you haven't read the book, you should repent and go read it. <laughs> so is C.S. Lewis responsible for Edmund's betrayal? Or is Edmund responsible for Edmund's betrayal? Is the author like 50% responsible and the character is 50% responsible? Or is it 90-10, 75-25? And the answer is 100-100. They're responsible fully, but in different ways, in different senses. So C.S. Lewis is the author of the book. He's responsible because he ordained what Edmund freely chose to do. So his responsibility is as the creator, the author of a fictional story. But Edmund's responsibility is a moral responsibility for an evil choice as a creature, as a character in a story. Now that's something like what we mean when yeah. we say that it's not God, a perfect analogy but it yeah, kind of yeah. suggests at it because i think that the, the danger with that is well, well edmund is a fictional creation he's not real and so there is no moral culpability that he faces he does only in the context of this fictional story but everybody always says that whenever i give this illustration that's the response and i concede with you brother that it's more complicated than that so yes the analogy fails in that it's it's not it has limitations uh-huh. But it has a bigger limitation than that. And this is the one no one ever puts their finger on. So the issue is that you, know, you say, well, humans in the real world are, are much greater than people in a fictional story. I've never heard someone say this objection. But God is far more powerful and knowledgeable and benevolent than C.S. Lewis, the author. Mm. In other words, God is way bigger than that. He can write, not just write a fictional story, he can 
design the universe with complex characters who freely and responsibly choose precisely what he ordains. Mm. And if it offends you to be compared to a character in a fictional story, look at half dozen passages in scripture that compare you to a clay pot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that's helpful. That's a good good kind of recalibration. Uh, so this gets into this topic of compatibilism. Yeah. yeah and yeah. so you're kind of advocating for that, that these two things can be true at once, even though they may we don't can't fit them together fully. The idea that God is completely sovereign over our choices and that we are mm-hmm. making real choices that we're responsible for. Yeah. So uh, the next step in trying to explain free will is this got to define our terms. And it can be scary to someone to hear compatibilism. Like, oh, what, what are we talking about? So basically... Is God's meticulous sovereignty, that is, he's sovereign over everything, is not just generally, but specifically, is that compatible with our human freedom? If so, then you believe in compatibilism, which I do, and Calvinists typically do. Because the, the other approach, the approach of maybe a hyper-Calvinist, would be to say, no, they're not compatible and that means we're going we're to get rid of human freedom. Correct. There's no such thing as human so freedom. So there are two errors here. You can deny human freedom, or you can deny God's meticulous sovereignty. Now, what incompatibilists do is say that God's meticulous sovereignty is not compatible with human freedom. And then further, the incompatibilists and the compatibilists define human freedom differently. So, And typically, Arminians are incompatibilists. So they would say that we have a free will in the sense that we can choose differently. We can equally make alternative choices in the same circumstances. And I would say as a compatibilist, well, we have a free will in the sense that we always choose what we most want. We, we voluntarily choose what we most want in any given circumstance as long as our choices aren't constrained. And when it comes to choosing Christ, you can see the difference here. So an incompatibilist would say something like this, I'm just as free to choose Christ as I am free to reject Christ. As a radically depraved sinner, I'm able to choose Christ because of prevenient grace. It enables me to freely do so if I decide. And I would say, as a compatibilist as a, and as a Calvinist, I am unable to choose Christ until God changes my heart. Because so, I, I always choose what my heart desires. And I, I always choose what I choose because I want what I want, because I am who I am, and I am who I am because of my heart. It's, I choose according to my nature. Just like a tomato plant can't produce apples, I can't choose Christ unless God changes my wanter, my nature, my heart. Mm. So yeah, maybe pressing into this particular topic, uh, how would you respond to the the concern that predestination renders the idea of this free offer of the gospel, something that we often say in our circles, especially when talking about evangelism, the free offer of the gospel, it renders it some kind of mirage. It's not, there can be no genuine free offer of the gospel extended to all people in a predestined kind of world. It depends how you define the word free. So what Calvinists mean by that is we indiscriminately offer the gospel to everyone, which is kind of like preaching in a cemetery, and God has to raise the dead. Mm. But we don't know which people God's planning to raise from the dead. So it's not like we can be picky and choosy with whom we share this good news with. God didn't tell us that. He just said, preach it to everybody. So our job is to proclaim this gospel to everybody. Mm indiscriminately. Yeah. Going back more broadly to this idea of predestination, positive predestination, namely election, some, uh, maybe the Arminian types listening might say, well, I believe in predestination, I believe in election, but it's election based on God foreseeing our faith, seeing faith that we freely choose to have. So why, why isn't that what you think is going on? Yeah. So basically the question is, what's the basis of God's choosing? Did he choose 
on the basis of something we do. And Arminians and Calvinists agree it, the basis is foreknowledge. There are several passages that say explicitly that God chose based on foreknowledge. But the controversy comes with how you define foreknowledge. Mm-hmm. And the way you defined it was a specific kind of view that the Arminians hold. It's called conditional election. They would say that foreknowing is basically God's foreseeing. That is, he, his foreknowledge is his knowledge of what humans would freely choose. So some call this prescience or foreseeing faith or simple foreknowledge. So that is God, God foresaw that specific individuals like Matt would first freely choose to believe in Christ. And then afterwards, he chose to save those individuals. So that's... He elects them. Yeah, yeah. that's basically the view that you propose in your question. But there's another view, which I think is more persuasive from Scripture, and that's that foreknowing is not foreseeing, but foreloving. God's foreknowledge is is his personal commitment to specific individuals. So the idea is he, he intimately knew you, Matt, and loved specific individuals beforehand. He personally committed himself to certain individuals before they even existed. So it's using the word knowledge or know, like we might say to another person, I know you. It doesn't just mean I know you exist. I know you did these things. It means there's a relational kind of element to that. Yeah, I've got a list in my book somewhere of a bunch of places where that word is used in scripture, and it doesn't refer to just knowledge. Like Adam knew his wife Eve. Yeah, we know what that means. (laughs) It's a little different than just, just knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe one of the most pastorally challenging and sensitive questions that can come up related to this, this idea of predestination and election is, relates to babies, babies who have passed away at a very early age, maybe even in the womb. Does the Bible help us understand how we should think about the death of babies and, and others who lacked the mental faculties to, to have faith, potentially? Um, do we have any un- understanding of what would have happened to them? Well, the Bible doesn't directly answer that difficult question anywhere, but it's it's natural for us to, to consider it, and it's good to talk about it. Uh, so the, the way I would proceed here is to try to say, what are the puzzle pieces in the Bible that we can assemble to start to answer that question? So let me just put a few on the table here. One is that uh, babies who die are sinners by nature, not sinners by choice. So the difference here is between original guilt and original sin. So original guilt means we're guilty before God before... Basically, we're guilty before God because all humans are originally in Adam. So original sin means we inherit a sinful nature. So we don't become sinners sometime after the our first perception. time we sin. That's right. Yeah. So we, we sin because we're sinners. We're, we, we become sinners. It's not like early in our lives we become sinners by choice. We're already sinners by nature. That's why we sin. So that's number one. Number two is that God condemns people who consciously rebel against him. So I know I'm working off of inferences here. This isn't directly answering your question. When you say that, though, God condemns people who consciously sin against him, does that mean that the opposite is true, that God doesn't condemn people who don't consciously sin against him? And where do we see that in Scripture? It would be just for God to condemn anyone who's in Adam. That would be just. Yeah, because we are guilty in Adam. That's right. Uh, But I'm looking at passages like Romans 1 that said, the wrath of God is revealed against these ungodly men who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Those are the ones who are without excuse. And I just can't imagine an infant in the womb being able to suppress the truth. Now, it doesn't mean that, again, God would be just to punish anyone who has a, a, a sinful nature because they have original sin, original guilt. But 
I'm looking at this, and there's another passage, more than one, but like uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 10 says that each one will receive what's due for what he's done in the body. Mm. So it's you're being judged for what you did. So I'm just suggesting if God condemns people who consciously rebel against him, that could imply that God does not condemn people who don't consciously rebel against him. And there's another passage in with David where it kind of suggests perhaps that uh, in a more direct way that... Um, babies might actually be saved. Yeah, that's a story that uh, when David had adultery uh, with Bathsheba, had a son, and the, and the baby died. God, and God, God punishes David by... That's right, that's by, right. Yeah. But what's interesting is David's mourning before the death and then not mourning after the death. And again, this isn't addressing our question directly, but when David says, I shall go to him, but he won't come to me, but I will go to him, it's possible... That he meant he'd join his son in the grave, not heaven. But mm. I think it's implying that God mercifully saves babies because David changes from being all mournful to being confident that he'll see his son. And then he just responds differently when his son Absalom dies, who was a rebel. Mm. Uh, then he did mourn. So there, there's that. And then God judges some people more severely than others. Of course, no human is saved apart from Christ. You have to insist on that. But you just put all that together and... It's my judgment. I could be wrong. My judgment is that the Bible implies that God mercifully saves babies who die. And I don't know that with 100% certainty. I think it's almost certainly true. And I think it's so probable that it's pastorally responsible to comfort grieving parents with these truths. Mm. It's comforted me and my wife. We've lost a baby through miscarriage. We named the baby Anastasis Hope. Anastasis means resurrection. Mm. So we're, we're confidently expecting to see her or him. I actually don't know. I have four daughters, so I assume it's a girl, but maybe I have a son. But I don't want to move on until I just say this. The key, when I'm shepherding people through miscarriages, I'll say basically what I just shared with you, but also add this. Whatever God does in this situation is just and good, mm. and you can trust him. Yeah. So what would it look like to take the doctrine of predestination too far beyond what the Bible teaches? Oh, there's so many ways you can mess this up. If you... Believe it in a way that thinks you don't need to proclaim the gospel. That's a massive error. That's disobeying scripture. Uh, if you think it, it do, you conclude it doesn't matter how I live. I'm either in or I'm out. Massive error. If you conclude that God chooses people and does not choose people, rejects people in the same way, I think that's an error. Mm -hmm. So it's not like th the way that God chooses people is exactly the same way he passes over people. The Bible presents those in a, not a, what's the word I'm thinking of? They're not equivalent? It's not like predestination is symmetrical, where some call it double predestination, but people can use double predestination in a good way too. But the idea is some think that God elects and reprobates people in the same way, symmetrically, like they're equally active decrees, like God sovereignly chose to work unbelief in certain unfallen individuals and condemn them. I don't think scripture teaches that. Mm. You think there's a, you want to hold a little distinction there. Yeah, so... In reprobation, God sovereignly and justly chose to pass over non-elect sinners and withhold his regenerating grace. So the difference is if, if it's a, a picture, a mass of humans rebelling against God, running away from God, running to hell, and God in his mercy saves some. That's more like what the Bible portrays as opposed to here's this big group of innocent people and God says, I'm going to make you do evil things and condemn you and I'm going to make you do good things. and like. But isn't that more, though, what comes out, though, in that picture of the potter and the, and the vessels, where there, there doesn't seem to be a distinction in terms of how it speaks about God makes some for 
salvation and some for condemnation. It could, if that's the only analogy you had. So mm-hmm. I, I see why some people conclude that. But, but you're trying to bring, what's the full picture that Scripture yeah. gives us and let that yeah. inform. So what I'm doing is looking at everything Scripture says, and that informs how I understand an analogy. So with analogies, it, they're, they can be tricky. Uh, when you use an analogy, often you have one point of comparison, and you can over-exegete an analogy. Yeah. And I'm trying not to over-exegete that analogy. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Letting, letting Scripture kind of dictate how we talk about these things is yeah. so important. Pastorally speaking, I think sometimes people who would embrace this doctrine, as you laid it out, would still struggle to know how to talk about it in everyday life, uh, whether it's parents to their kids or pastors to their congregations or just friends. So speak to the parent right now who, who their kids come to them and ask them a simple question that I'm sure all parents have heard. Does God love everybody? How should they respond in light of the doctrine of predestination? So the answer is, yes, God does love everyone, but not in the same way. There's a a pastor named Mark Jones, whom Crossway publishes, and he has an article called, Does God Hate the Sin and Love the Sinner, or something like that. And in there, he ends it with 10 different ways that we can speak this way. And some of them are like this, God hates the sin and hates the non-elect sinner, because he'll ultimately damn that person, and he doesn't just hate their sins. And you could say God hates the sin and loves the non-elect sinner. I mean, that person is still someone God created, and he shows much grace towards that person by letting them have his food and rain and sun and air and all that. Uh, and you can go on. There's all these different ways to talk about it. So you can, you can say, yes, God loves everyone, but you can flatten all of the other distinctives if you use that like a bumper sticker. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the, the answer is just a little bit more nuanced than we often want to give it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, another question what should we say, how should we talk about this doctrine, this truth, in the face of maybe the death of a family member or a good friend who wasn't a believer, as, f- as far as we know, never repented, never believed? So often it can be easy to take some solace from the, some solace from the fact that, well, they never chose to believe. You know, they, 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 it was their choice and they rejected God. And so that provides us some measure of, I suppose, comfort, maybe isn't the right word, but it feels like it gets more complicated when we start to in- introduce the doctrine of predestination into that. Well, f- first thing, you don't know with 100% certainty necessarily whether a person trusted Christ at the end or not, mm-hmm. uh, especially if it's a family member who knew the gospel. It, they may have turned at the end. You yeah. don't know. But let's say they didn't. Well, you have to ask, what does is, what is God reveal to us in Scripture that says, here's why reprobation exists. Here's the goal. And there are two of them at least. One of them is subservient to the second. The v- one is to glorify God for his wrath and his power. That's in Romans nine seventeen and 18. And then that leads to the ultimate goal, which is to glorify God for the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. That's what scripture says in, right there in Romans 9. That's 22 and 23. Now, this can sound callous, but it, it's right there in scripture. But the idea I have is like when I bought my wife a diamond ring and went to a jeweler store. I never go to jeweler stores. And the... He put the ring uh, under all these bright lights, and beneath it he put a black velvet cloth. And I, I realize now he didn't put, like, a white pillow underneath. He put a black cloth because the black background with the bright light on the diamond let me see that diamond in ways I wouldn't have seen without that background. Mm. And Scripture says one of the purposes for God's passing over some is to glorify God for the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. So that's what the text says. Now, but would you say that to someone who had just lost a family member? Of course, of course not in that moment. Yeah. But I'm trying to th- make sense theologically of how this all fits. Mm-hmm. Like, 
uh, as a Christian, how do I make sense of it? I, that is one piece of the puzzle scripture gives us yeah. to say God has his reasons and I dare not hate God for something I don't understand. Mm. Uh, so I'm just wanting to trust God and he's revealed some true things about this. That's one of them. And I need to believe it. If I don't, I'm being disobedient. Yeah. How much of that is the proper Christian response to a doctrine like this? Uh, you talked about loving predestination and, and I think we can understand ways that that can happen, mm-hmm. but how much of this, even for you uh, today is there's a sense in which we have to just choose to trust God and cling to that hope that we have that he is just, he is good. And that maybe someday in glory, we will understand better and, and even appreciate to a certain extent his choices on this stuff. Um, is there, is there a kind of hoping in what we see in the future coming that it kind of is going to get us through some of these difficult? Absolutely. Difficult but it, I think it's immature to have the attitude when you're talking about a difficult doctrine in scripture to say, well, here's what the Bible says. I believe it, but I don't like it. And like try to apologize for the Bible. Mm. That I think that is immature at best. What's far better is to not just concede, yes, that's what Scripture teaches, but to love God and love the truth, even if you don't understand everything about it, but not question God in his ways. Mm. So this is true for what God says about men and women. Carson, my mentor, D.A. Carson, was counseling a couple, and they said something like, okay, we see that we see complementarianism is what Scripture teaches, but we don't like it. And Carson said, good, you're halfway there. Mm. <laughs> don't, don't stay there, though. Yes, yes. That's not the ideal that's right. spot to be. So that's why I write a book like this, is to help people consider everything Scripture says about it and come to love it. Yeah. Maybe as a final question, one response to this whole conversation we've had today to a book like yours is that this is really just unhelpful speculation that goes beyond what the Bible clearly says. Wouldn't it be better to leave this topic vague and mysterious to not try to logically fit these pieces together, but to instead just sort of back away and don't don't get into the weeds as deeply as we have, lest we put God in a box or overly systematize something that we just simply can't fully understand. That certainly can happen. You can you can over overdo so, it. So that is a danger. Oh yeah. So what I try to do in this book is say, here's what Scripture says about election and reprobation. Here's how I think it coheres. And if I ever speculate, I say so in the book. Mm. I'll say, this is speculation, or uh, I'm not sure about this. And I do that rarely. And I think that's helpful to just distinguish between God revealed this, he didn't reveal that. An example is when I talk about free will. And I, I end up by saying, how is this even possible that God can be meticulously sovereign and ordain what I would freely choose to do and not be in any way responsible for the sin that he ordained I would freely choose to do? How's that possible? And the answer is, I don't know. Yeah. It's a mystery. So you, Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's a helpful thing to hear as a Calvinist, you say, because oftentimes Calvinists are charged with, with yeah, trying to explain everything logically and not acknowledging that there is mystery. But it seems like you would want to say, no, 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 that's core to what we're doing here is we're holding these, these two truths we see in Scripture together, and we're not always able to explain it fully. In, it's just like the that, death of Christ. God predestined it. And the people who murdered Jesus are responsible. We literally see that. There's a verse Acts in Acts. 2 and 4. Yeah, that says that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Andy, thank you so much for helping us to, to think about these difficult, deep topics, challenging topics that do confront us in a certain way. We appreciate it. My pleasure.
That was Andy Nacelli on the doctrine of predestination. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Predestination, an Introduction, which is part of our growing Short Studies in Systematic Theology series. Pick up a print copy of the book for 30% off, or get the ebook for 50% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org. For more audio content like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with a friend and leaving us a review. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's Word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.